Section 3 of the Science, History of the Universe, Volume 5. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Science, History of the Universe, Volume 5, edited by Francis Ralt Wheeler. Biology, Chapter 3, The Physiological Idea of Life, Part 1. Accepting the complicated processes of metabolism and reproduction as distinguishing characteristics of life, the force back of these distinctive powers or properties of living matter becomes a fruitful topic for investigation. Thompson in The Science of Life discusses this question. Over and over again in the history of biology, the doctrine of a special vital force has arisen, held sway for a time, and then disappeared. It arises as a reaction from the false simplicity of premature solutions, or as a despairing retreat in the face of baffling problems, or as the result of misunderstanding the real aim of science. The doctrine is an old one, for even if we ignored the speculations of the ancients, it must date at least from Paracelsus and Van Helmont. As it has naturally taken very different forms in different generations, the word vitalism, so often used, has little definite meaning. There is a sense in which no modern physiologist is a vitalist, since none rejects physico-chemical interpretations, as the early French vitalists did. There is a sense in which all modern physiologists are vitalists, since none pretends to know the secret of that particular synthesis, which even the simplest of organisms illustrates. The phrase vital force may be used as a general expression for the energies resident in living matter and may serve to suggest that we do not at present understand them or how they are related in the unity of the organism. But the phrase was originally used to denote a hyper-mechanical force, a mystical power, resident in living creatures, and quite different from thermic, electric, and other forms of energy. This was the meaning attached to the phrase by the disciples of Haller, by Louis Dumas, 1765-1813, by Real, 1759-1813, and the other early vitalists. It can only be said that an appeal to such a force violates the scientific method and abandons the scientific problem. Again and again, in regard to particular points, Subsequent progress has shown that the loss in faith in science was premature. According to the hypothesis of vitalism, the phenomena of life are inexplicable apart from a special vital force exclusively resident in organisms and different from the chemico-physical energies of the inanimate world. Thus the great pathologist and anatomist Henel died 1885 believed in a non-material agent associated with the organism, presiding over the metabolism of the body, capable of reproducing the typical form, and of endless partition without diminution of intensity. It is altogether an error to suppose that a refusal to believe in such a special, vital force, implies materialism. The questions are quite separate. The former has to do with scientific method. The latter is a philosophical theory. Thus Huxley was certainly no believer in a vital force, yet he was clearly an idealist, and the same might be said of many. 
Every physiologist will, I believe, admit that he cannot at present give a physico-chemical interpretation of contractility or of irritability, of digestion or of absorption, of respiration or of circulation. What he can give is a partial analysis of these functions in simpler terms. This must remain the case until we discover the secret of synthesis, which the simplest unicellular organism expresses. The neo-vitalists, such as Bunge and Reinfleisch, emphasize the fact that there is no present possibility of giving a complete chemico-physical restatement of any observed function. There are always residual phenomena, and that the known physico-chemical causes do not seem adequate to the result. In other words, the categories of mechanism, of chemistry and physics, cannot be forced upon vitality without doing violence to the very idea of the organism. A complex adaptive synthesis of matter and energy whose secret remains unread. When the neo-vitalists go forth and insist on an idealistic as opposed to a materialistic conception, they may be quite correct, but they are raising another question, which is philosophical rather than biological. Huxley, in his famous address, on the physical basis of life, has well stated the case against the existence of a vital force. What justification is there then, he says, for the assumption of the existence in living matter of something which has no representative or correlative in the not living matter which gave rise to it? What better philosophical status has vitality than aquacity? And why should vitality hope for a better fate than the other ities which have disappeared since Martinus Scriblerus accounted for the operation of the meat-jack by its inherent meat-roasting quality, and scorned the materialism of those who explain the turning of the spit by a certain mechanism worked by the draft of the chimney. If scientific language is to possess a definite and constant signification whenever it is employed, it seems to me that we are logically bound to apply to the protoplasm or physical basis of life the same conceptions as those which are held to be legitimate elsewhere. If the phenomena exhibited by water are its properties, so are those presented by protoplasm, living or dead, its properties. If the properties of water may be properly said to result from the nature and disposition of its component molecules, I can find no intelligible ground for refusing to say that the properties of protoplasm result from the nature and disposition of its molecules. This idea of the physical basis of life, so clearly stated by Huxley, has been further developed by Dr. Michael Foster, whose line of thought is as follows. The more the molecular problems of physiology are studied, the stronger becomes the conviction that the consideration of what we call structure and composition must, in harmony with the modern teachings of physics, be approached under the dominant conception of modes of motion. The physicists have been led to consider the qualities of things as expressions of internal movements. Even more imperative does it seem to us that the biologists should regard the qualities of living matter, including structure and composition, as in like manner the expressions of internal movements. He may speak of living matter as a complex substance, but he must strive to realize that what he means by that is a complex whirl, an intricate dance, of which what he calls chemical composition, histological structure, and gross configuration are, so to speak, the figures. 
to him the renewal of protoplasm is but the continuance of the dance its functions and actions the transferences of the figures it seems to us necessary for a satisfactory study of the problems to keep clearly before the mind the conception that the phenomena in question are the result not the properties of kinds of matter but of kinds of motion before passing from the consideration of vital force and the physical basis of life it will be of interest to compare the views of the biologists huxley and foster with that expressed in a lecture by the great physicist tyndall the origin growth and energies of living things he reminded his hearers are subjects which have always engaged the attention of thinking men to account for them it was usual to assume a special agent free to a great extent from the limitations observed among the powers of inorganic nature this agent was called vital force and under its influence plants and animals were supposed to collect their materials and to assume determinate forms within the last few years however our ideas of vital processes have undergone profound modifications and the interest and even disquietude which the change has excited are ample evidence by the discussions and protests which are now common regarding the phenomena of vitality in tracing these phenomena through all their modifications the most advanced philosophers of the present day declare that they ultimately arrive at a single source of power from which all vital energy is derived and the disquieting circumstance is that this source is not the direct fiat of a supernatural agent but a reservoir of what if we do not accept the creed of zoroaster must be regarded as inorganic force in short it is considered as proved that all the energy which we derive from plants and animals is drawn from the sun a few years ago when the sun was affirmed to be the source of life nine out of ten of those who are alarmed by the form which this assertion has latterly assumed would have assented in a general way to its correctness their assent however was more poetic than scientific and they were by no means prepared to see a rigid mechanical signification attached to their words this however is the peculiarity of modern conclusions that there is no creative energy whatever in the vegetable or animal organism but that all the power which we obtain from the muscles of man and animals as much as that which we develop by the combustion of wood or coal has been produced at the sun's expense to most minds however the energy of light and heat presents itself as a thing totally distinct from ordinary mechanical energy either of them can nevertheless be derived from the other wood can be raised by friction to the temperature of ignition while by properly striking a piece of iron a skilful blacksmith can cause it to glow thus by the rude agency of his hammer he generates light and heat this action if carried far enough would produce the light and heat of the sun in fact the sun's light and heat have actually been referred to the fall of meteoric matter upon his surface and whether the sun is thus supported or not it is perfectly certain that he might be thus supported if then solar light and heat can be produced by the impact of dead matter and if from the light and heat thus produced we can derive the energies which we have been accustomed to call vital it indubitably follows that vital energy may have approximately mechanical origin in what sense then is the sun to be regarded as the origin of the energy derivable from plants and animals 
Let us try and give an intelligible answer to this question. Water may be raised from the sea level to a high elevation, and then permitted to descend. In descending, it may be made to assume various forms, to fall in cascades, to spurt in fountains, to boil in eddies, or to flow tranquilly along a uniform bed. It may, moreover, be caused to set complex machinery in motion, to turn millstones, throw shuttles, work saws and hammers, and drive piles. But every form of power here indicated would be derived from the original power expended in raising the water to the height from which it fell. There is no energy generated by the machinery. The work performed by the water in descending is merely the parceling out and distribution of the work expended in raising it. In precisely this sense is all the energy of plants and animals, the parceling out and distribution of a power originally exerted by the sun. In the case of the water, the source of the power consists in the forcible separation of a quantity of the liquid from a low level of the earth's surface and its elevation to a higher position, the power thus expended being returned by the water in its descent. In the case of vital phenomena, the source of power consists in the forcible separation of the atoms of compound substances by the sun. We name the force which draws the water earthward gravity, that which draws atoms together chemical affinity. But these different names must not mislead us regarding the qualitative identity of the two forces. They are both attractions, and to the intellect the falling of carbon atoms against oxygen atoms is not more difficult of conception than the falling of water to the earth. The building up of the vegetable, then, is effected by the sun through the reduction of chemical compounds. The phenomena of animal life are more or less complicated reversals of these processes of reduction. We eat the vegetable, and we breathe the oxygen of the air, and in our bodies the oxygen, which had been lifted from the carbon and hydrogen by the action of the sun, again falls toward them, producing animal heat and developing animal forms. Through the most complicated phenomena of vitality, this law runs. The vegetable is produced while a weight rises. The animal is produced while a weight falls. But the question is not exhausted here. The water employed in our first illustration generates all the motion displayed in its descent, but the form of the motion depends on the character of the machinery imposed in the path of the water. In a similar way, the primary action of the sun's rays is qualified by the atoms and molecules among which their energy is distributed. Molecular forces determine the form which the solar energy will assume. In the separation of the carbon and oxygen, this energy may be conditioned as to result in one case in the formation of a cabbage, and in another case in the formation of an oak. So also, as regards the reunion of the carbon and the oxygen, the molecular machinery through which the combining energy acts may, in one case, weave the texture of a frog, while in another it may weave the texture of a man. The matter of the animal body is that of inorganic nature. There is no substance in the animal tissues which is not primarily derived from the rocks, the water, and the air. Are the forces of organic matter, then, different in kind from those of inorganic matter? The philosophy of the present day negatives the question. It is the compounding, in the organic world, of forces belonging equally to the inorganic that constitutes the mystery and the miracle of vitality. 
every portion of every animal body may be reduced to purely inorganic matter a perfect reversal of this process of reduction would carry us from the inorganic to the organic and such a reversal is at least conceivable the tendency indeed of modern science is to break down the wall of partition between organic and inorganic and to reduce both to the operation of forces which are the same in kind but which are differently compounded consider the question of personal identity in relation to that of molecular form thirty-four years ago mayer of heilbronn with that power of genius which breathes large meanings into scanty facts pointed out that the blood was the oil of the lamp of life the combustion of which sustains muscular action the muscles are the machinery by which the dynamic power of the blood is brought into play thus the blood is consumed but the whole body though more slowly than the blood wastes also so that after a certain number of years it is entirely renewed how is the sense of personal identity maintained across this flight of molecules to man as we know him matter is necessary to consciousness but the matter of any period may be all changed while consciousness exhibits no solution of continuity like changing sentinels the oxygen hydrogen and carbon that depart seem to whisper their secret to their comrades that arrive and thus while the non-ego shifts the ego remains the same constancy of form in the grouping of the molecules and not constancy of the molecules themselves is the correlative of this constancy of perception life is a wave which in no two consecutive moments of its existence is composed of the same particles supposing then the molecules of the human body instead of replacing others and thus renewing a pre-existing form to be gathered first-hand from nature and put together in the same relative positions as those which they occupy in the body supposing them to have the self-same forces and distribution of forces the self-same motions and distribution of motions would this organized concourse of molecules stand before us as a sentient thinking being there seems no valid reason to believe that it would not or supposing a planet carved from the sun set spinning round an axis and revolving round the sun at a distance from him equal to that of our earth would one of the consequences of its refrigeration be the development of organic forms i lean to the affirmative structural forces are certainly in the mass whether or not those forces reach to the extent of forming a plant or an animal in an amorphous drop of water lie latent all the marvels of crystalline force and who will set limits to the possible play of molecules in a cooling planet if these statements startle it is because matter has been defined and maligned by philosophers and theologians who were equally unaware that it is at bottom essentially mystical and transcendental end of section three